Romans chapter 5. Because we've been dealing so much with the topic of justification, I really thought about just jumping right across the first part of Romans chapter 5 right into to verse 12, but I couldn't do it. And so, I didn't do it. Romans 5, 1 through 11. I'd like us to read together. Therefore, since we have been justified. Now, that's the first thing I want you guys to notice. Paul is addressing those who have been justified. No others. You're not included in this if you have not. Everything that follows here does not apply to you if you're not justified. So see, he's qualifying his statements here. We have been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation." Up till now, I have tried to explain to you guys what justification is. This morning, I want to deal with five fruits that spill forth from justification to the person who's justified. Five fruits. Five very, very, very valuable benefits that come to us from God that are connected with being Justified. My, by way of introduction, I want you to notice right at the end of verse 1, notice with me, at the end of verse 1, and even beginning at verse 2, you have these words. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him. The first and most important means to the end of laying hold of these five gifts is that Jesus Christ has come into the world, lived a life of perfect righteousness, died in our place to bear our condemnation for our sins, and is risen to vindicate the success of His work 
I want you to see that. None of this happens except through Him. None of this happens except you are in Jesus Christ. And to be in Him means you are a partaker of His death. You are a partaker of His life. You are a partaker of His perfect righteousness that is imputed to you. You are acquitted of your sin. Folks, that is the issue. What I'm about to tell you in these five benefits, these five fruits of justification, is they are based on and they come to you through Jesus Christ alone. The second thing is, by way of introduction, the next thing that must happen, He's he's done the work, but our eyes must set on Christ. And you see that right here in the text. We must have our eyes open to see the truth and beauty of this glorious work of redemption. We must believe on the risen Christ. You can see that in the two little words right there in verse 1. By faith. Our connection with the righteousness of Christ and the sin-bearing death of Christ and all the benefits that flow from it is by faith alone. No faith, no benefits. That's, that's the bottom line. And then, you have Christ did the work. Our faith connects us to Christ and by that, you are justified. That means you are acquitted of sin. Every single sin is passed over. And by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to your account, you are viewed by God as perfect. That is the introduction. That is the basis. You can call these things advantages, gifts, benefits, fruits, blessings, whatever you want to call them. But you've got to have the work of Christ. You've got to have a faith in that work of Christ. And you've got to be justified by that faith that you have in Christ to be able to procure for yourself these five blessings. Oh, folks, these things are so valuable, so precious. If you're a true believer in here, they can't do anything but bring you hope and joy. They, they really can't. Here they are. First one. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace. Here's the first fruit of justification from our text. You clearly see it right there. It's only since we have been justified by faith that we have peace. In other words, no justification. No peace. Peace depends on justification. Well, my question to you is, how are we to understand the peace? You know, somebody can come in here and they just got done smoking a joint. They walk in here and they say, well, you know, I feel happy. I'm, I'm, I'm at peace. Or, you know, do you guys remember? Maybe this will prove my age as I'm getting... you guys remember that old Calgon commercial? <laughs> you had the kids screaming, the doorbell ringing, the phone was going off, and all these problems, and the woman just throws up her arms and says, What? Exactly. And the next picture they show her buried. Only the face is showing through all the suds in the tub. But see, that idea of peace means tranquility. It means serenity. If somebody says, I just want some peace and quiet. What they mean is, they want tranquility. But folks, there is another meaning to peace. Is there not? The other meaning of peace is that state 
which is opposite of being at war. And that, folks, is exactly how it's being used here. That's not to say that there isn't peace and tranquility and a rest that's given to the conscience and to the heart and the soul when somebody comes to Christ. There is a rest in Christ. All I'm saying is, that's not the way Paul's using the word right here. Understand that. What we have right here is the fact that we are no longer at war with God. There is now an actual state of harmony that exists between two individuals. Which Paul's talking about is between us and God. He doesn't mean that specifically, you know, it's serenity and tranquility and everything just because you come to God. He means that God takes His weapons of warfare against you and sets them aside. That's what He means. The warfare between us. We're no longer enemies. Where I was an enemy to Him before. Now I'm a friend and I'm a son. And you know, we can see that right here in our text. You can see quite clearly that a non-warring condition with God is exactly what's being intended. If you just look down the context a little bit, Romans 5.10 and 11, for if while we were enemies, and there's the issue, folks, we were enemies. But while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. That's the idea of peace. Reconciliation. There is harmony now between us and the Lord. The old songwriter Wesley, he picked up on this when he wrote, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn King, peace on earth, and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Now, you guys, you know, we look at that song and we connect it with, you know, Christmas time and singing Silent Night. And we can think peace on earth. Oh, it was just a peaceful, silent night and there's the sheep and they're up there treading softly on the mountainside. That's not what He meant. Peace on earth. You know what He meant by the very next phrase. He said, God and sinners reconciled. What He means is that for those who will believe in this newborn King, there is peace. There is no longer warfare. We, by nature, are at war with God. Romans 8 7 says, The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There is enmity, hostility, unfriendliness, alienation, and even hatred. Scripture tells us that exists between God and man. And the point is, God is angry at us. Not just at our sin. He's angry at us. And we are in rebellion against Him. And that is why Romans 1.18 says the wrath of God is against all of our unrighteousness and ungodliness. And folks, that's against us. That's against people. There is warfare. There is hostility that exists there. Just imagine the power of God that backs that hostility, that anger He has against sinners. You know, I was thinking... When I worked at Miller Curtin Company in that engineering office, one of my engineering comrades sat back behind me. He had a picture on his wall, which I told you guys about before, but I think it's applicable again. What they did, he told, I looked at it, and I said, what's that? And he said, what they did, what, what astronomers did, is they pointed the Hubble telescope 
at what was previously thought to be one of the darkest places in all the sky. They turned it there. They cranked the magnification all the way up on this thing, or extremely high, and they snapped a picture. This picture showed objects from edge to edge. And not just stars. In fact, there weren't hardly any stars in it. It was solid galaxies in the darkest part of the sky. Now, you know what they've done? They have interpolated based on that area of sky and figured there are probably, with our current technology and what we can see, there are an estimated 130 billion galaxies. Now, if that doesn't mean anything to you, let me tell you about this. We are in one galaxy all by ourselves. This galaxy from one end to the other end is so massively huge, so massively big. Let me just tell you this. It comprises of 400 billion stars. Now, if you just took our galaxy as an average, multiply 400 billion times 130 billion galaxies out there, you know what you come up with? 50,000 billion billion stars. That is literally a five with like 22 zeros behind it. You say, what's all that got to do with being at peace with God? I'll tell you what it's got to do with it. You think of the power that went behind putting all that in place. He spoke a word. And it was. If you are at war with God, that power that went into the creation of this universe in one word is against you. That's being in a bad place, folks. That is being in a terrible position. You do not want to sit here today with access to the Gospel of Jesus Christ and go out of here lost and continue fighting against that God. Because I tell you what, the day of judgment is coming. And in that day, you've had only glimpses of His wrath and the power that stands against you. But in that day, it will be unleashed. But if I'm justified, I have peace. There's no warfare. It's all, all that power that was against me has been set aside as being against me, folks. The issue with peace, it's not whether you feel it. It's whether God is really at peace with you. And if you're justified, He is. Second thing, back to our text. Romans, I'll, I'll read again from 5.1. Since we have been justified. And notice that. That's the premise from which all this flows. Since we have been justified. With no justification, these things are not a, a reality. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we have also, now notice the word also. What he's saying here is you not only have peace, you also have something else. You've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What does that mean? Getting access to grace. 
Well, access means what? You have a right to enter. If you have access to fatties, it means you maybe you've been given permission, but it means there's there's a place you can enter and you're able to enter. That's what the idea is. Enter grace. Now, some will say, well, grace is undeserved or unmerited favor. I believe that although that's an aspect of what grace is, I believe that that far, far um, undervalues. Just If we just keep it there, we've fallen far short of what the fullness of entering into the grace of God is. Why do I say that? Let me give you an example. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. You don't have to turn there, but listen to me read it. By the grace of God. Okay, Paul, what did that grace of God do? You have this grace. Are we just simply talking unmerited favor here? Or is there something else in this? He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain. He's not just saying here, it wasn't in vain because I got undeserved merit from it. He's saying it wasn't in vain because it made me into what I am. He goes on to say, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. The grace Paul talks about here makes Paul into a certain type of man. The grace of God was not in vain. It was active. And it was producing in him the ability to work harder than any of the others. Here's the point. Grace is constantly and powerfully exerting itself for the good of the one who has access to it. Take any use of the term grace in all the New Testament and apply that to it. It works. That flows out of this grace. Listen to Romans 4.16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. Do you see the connection? What is it that guarantees it? It's grace. Why does grace guarantee it? Because there's power behind it to make it happen. Always. There is an exertion on God's part to make that thing come true. Romans 5.21 So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ. Christ our Lord. Notice that grace reigns. To reign means it commands, it controls, it has dominion, it has influence, it has power, it has sovereignty and supremacy. It holds sway. It is an exercise of power. I'm not talking about the disposition of a gracious little old lady when we talk about this grace that we enter into. When it comes to God, it is, listen to me, What I just said about the peace of God and all the power of God, we see it demonstrated in these heavens. We see it demonstrated in the size of this universe. And what happens is He lays aside that power against us. But He actually doesn't just lay it aside and not do anything with it. He lays it aside as far as our warfare is concerned. But then you know what He does with all that strength and all that power? He turns around and He uses it for our good. Where before it was bent against us, now God in His full sovereignty, His full power, He turns it for our good. 
Do you realize the security in that? Do you realize what it means when it says, in that we stand? We're talking power of God. We have access to it. And I stand in it if I'm justified. That is tremendous, folks. That means nothing knocks you off that access of grace upon which you stand or in which you stand. Not at all. Okay. The third thing. Back to our text again. The third fruit of justification. Again, I'll start reading from the beginning. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, one, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we also, that's number two, obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and... There's an and. It's conjunctive. It means there's something else. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now break that up. Just look at the last phrase. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Start with the, with the, with the simplest item here. You have God. You have a God who has glory. We have a hope in the glory of God and there is a rejoicing in that hope of the glory of God. What Paul is saying here is the joy of the Christian hinges on a hope. A hope that is targeted towards the glory of God. And listen. Listen to me. You really hope for or hope in what you tremendously desire and what you really love. Isn't that the case? Make no mistake about it. If you love the glory of God, then your hope in the glory of God is going to be a spring of joy for you. This is key. This is key because people walk around who profess to be Christians and they lack joy. And that may very well point right back to the fact that they don't have any hope in the glory of God or maybe don't even know what that expression means, have no idea about it. Their religion is outside the bounds of that. There is a literal spring of joy and rejoicing that comes from our hope in the glory of God. And this is no small matter. Just think about how great the glory of God must be if Paul tells us that the mere hope of having it produces joy. Not just the having it, the hope of it. This is something that just the mere hope that I will obtain it produces ecstasy in God's people. It produces happiness. It produces joy. Just the expectation. Now, let's, let's think about a few um, references. Because what I want to drive home to you guys is there is nothing more to be desired than the glory of God. And the Bible tells us we will have it if we are justified. We will have it in God because God is our God and we will have Him. Doesn't Scripture say, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. I will see the glory of God with my own eyes because Scripture says the pure in heart shall see God. 
I will see Him. I will have Him. I will be able to hold Him. I will be able to gaze upon Him. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ. And Scripture tells me I'm going to see Him as He is. As He is. Admire Him. Christian, is that not your greatest hope? Titus 2.13 Our blessed hope. What is it? Is the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul says that nothing is to be compared to the glory of God. Listen to what he says, Romans 8.18 I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see the word there? Not worth comparing. He uses the word compare. Compare the glory of God to your sufferings in this life. And he says it's not worthy to be compared. Don't even, don't even start throwing them in the balance. It's not even worth your effort to do that. He goes on to tell us in another place, 2 Corinthians 4.17, the slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He says, you know, you see what he's comparing? Affliction and glory. He says, affliction is momentary. He says, glory is eternal. He says, affliction is slight. He says, the weight of glory. Do you know what he's saying? If you had to suffer in a North Korean work camp and be tortured from now to the end of your days, in light of what the glory of God is. I mean, if they pulled your toes off, if they slid on you with dull knives, if they beat you with clubs, if they tied you in ropes, if they made you work in sewage, if your life was miserable, if they made it as hard on you as they possibly could and made you sleep in a little box at night that was about two by two by two, and in the end of all that, said and done, if you had to do it for the next 60 years, what that weight of glory is that God has to offer you, you would not count it as anything. It would be forgotten. Because His glory is so worth having. If you had to die 10,000 deaths, it's worth getting to. It's worth having. It's worth holding on to. No comparison. God will have great glory that we will be... You guys think of it! We will literally swim in this. When I talk about glory, I'm talking about the greatness of God's beauty, the shining of all His excellencies, the radiance of His perfections. We will bask in the rays of that. They'll permeate us. They will surround us. It will be an ocean of glorious perfection that we will be able to swim in over our heads, be filled with, admire it. We will be consumed, folks, by glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 says, To this He called you through our Gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. We sing it! The Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land and we don't understand what we sing. It is so vast. It is so glorious. So to be had. And you, you know what? You only have it if you're justified. You only have the hope of it if you're justified. You may have a hope of it, but if you're not justified, it's vain hope. The only true hope in it and the only rejoicing from a true hope like that is folks comes out of the fact you're justified. 
Romans 9.23 says, God makes known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Do you know what He's preparing you for right now, Christian? He's preparing you for that glory. Okay? Fourth, now, you guys might not think this is so glorious as the last three. The fourth fruit of justification, I trust that you've all clearly seen, peace with God, access into grace, rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God are connected with being justified. Now, the next fruit of justification found in verse 3, read with me, Romans 5, 3. More than that. Now, oh, I don't like that. More than the glory of God? For one, it's not how it comes across in the original and only our ESVs do that. The NAS doesn't do it. The King James, the New King James, they don't do it. They say, not only that. That is much better. Much better. Don't tell me more than that. That's, that's just bad. There's nothing more than the glory of God or even the hope in it. We rejoice in our sufferings. So, if you read it this way, not only that, not only do you get peace and grace and the hope of the glory of God and the rejoicing that goes with that, not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. Not only that, Paul's saying, I'm not done yet. There are more than just these three things I've just mentioned. He says, we rejoice in our sufferings. If Paul is making the point that justified people rejoice in sufferings, then guess what he's implying? Justified people have suffering. Guess what God's people get? Sufferings. When's the last time any of you guys rejoiced in your sufferings? How come I didn't see any hands? Oh, we have... One Stephanie, kind of. Well, actually, what Paul goes on to say here is it isn't really the suffering itself that causes us rejoicing. And we'll kind of break that down and see how it works. But the whole point is, follow this. Follow the, this flow. We rejoice in sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. Now, if you've watched something, he just got done telling us we, if we're justified, we have hope because we rejoice in that hope of the glory of God. But now he goes on to say something. He says, but what God does is He gives you suffering to increase that hope. And if you rejoice in the hope, of the glory of God, you should rejoice in anything God brings in your life to increase that hope that brings the joy. And how does He do it? He does it through a sequence. How does it happen? Suffering comes. What is suffering? Sometimes we call it a trial. Why? Because it tries our faith. Your faith isn't tried when everything goes well. Your faith is tried when you are tempted and Tribulation 
tempts you to not trust God. That's what, but what happens is, when a person who has truly been justified because they have true faith is subjected to suffering, what happens? Instead of complaining and moaning and having bitterness and getting all upset and not trusting God, our faith causes us to run to Christ. In the midst of the trial and tribulation, we lay hold upon God. And what does that do? Well, it proves endurance. Because the endurance is me being put under attack and I stand. That's what endurance is. That's what perseverance is. So, where there's true faith and the faith runs to Christ, it doesn't fold as soon as the suffering comes. There's endurance. The next thing is character. The idea behind that word is proven character. What happens is, my character is proven. I'm proven to be able to stand fast. My character is proven to be able to hold. My character is proven to be able to endure. And what happens? Then there's hope. Why is there hope? You know why there's hope? Because I can look at myself and I can realize the faith I have is real. Because I've been put to the test and I have seen with my own eyes it's not, the, it's not fake. I've stood the test. Christian, have you ever been there? Where you have gone through something very difficult and looked back on it and thought, wow, I could not have done that the way I was when I was lost. God gave me such grace and sustained me through that. And you look at that whole thing and what has happened? Now my hope has even increased. Yes, my faith is true. It's endured. My character's been proven. And that only builds my hope more than I'm going to have that glory of God in the end. And so you get suffering, Freddie. The fifth thing. Oh, these, these four things are incredible. They're great. God offers them to mankind freely, but only if you're justified. And that He offers freely based on the work of Jesus Christ if you have faith. And that He gives to you. It's by grace through faith. It's a gift. Oh, it's all of Him. Every crown's coming off our heads in heaven, folks. They're going at His feet. Which brings us to the last thing and by no means the least thing. Love. You see it there. Romans 5.5 Hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. God's love is poured into our hearts. That is the last fruit of justification I want to mention from this portion of of Romans 5. Now, guys, think with me here. Because... This could almost be understood a couple different ways. This statement about God's love could be taken to mean or to refer to the love God has for us. He pours into our heart. Or it could be referring to a love that God gives to us, which is His love, with which we love others. And that would not be out of line either because we know that we are to love God. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we see that love is in fact a fruit of the Spirit. And Paul says right here in Romans 5 that this is happening through the work of the Spirit. It could be that. 
But folks, I believe this is clearly referring mainly to God's love for us. Not our love for God, nor our love for other people. And I say this because of the context and what follows. Look with me at verse 6. Romans 5, 6. For. Now, that's an important word. Because what does it do? It attaches us right back to the comment he just said. He means, I'm not breaking into a new subject right now. I am going to tell you right now, I am going to expand on what I just said. I'm going to tell you about the love of God that He pours into your heart through the Holy Spirit. For, why we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. What He's doing is He's showing us the expression of God's love for us in our weak and ungodly condition. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even die. And here we go. Verse 8. God shows His love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by His life. Do you see what He has said? God pours His love into you, you justified Christian, through the Holy Spirit. And now let me give you the objective truth that shows you that love and through which the Holy Spirit communicates that love to you. And He comes over and He says, this love is expressed while you were ungodly. The fact that God would give His only begotten Son to go die on Calvary's cross while you were an enemy against Him in order to bring reconciliation Can I, can I emphasize something to you guys? This is experiencing God's love. Now, think with me. God pours His love into our heart by the Holy Spirit. You can read, the, read the, the verb tense there. It says very specifically that God's love has been. But that verb actually signifies, it denotes an ongoing process. What that means is that God did it, has done it, is doing it, and will do it continuously. God pours forth His love not into our lives just once. He's continually doing it. This is experiencing the God of love. The God's love. But now watch with me because this is so profound. What Paul does is immediately turns 
to the objective truth. Now, I know there's been a lot said recently about the objective and the subjective nature of the Christian life. It's been coming up in our discerning the Lord's will, how we live our life. I believe that this right here is a perfect scriptural example of how both the objective and subjective work together. What do I mean by that? The subjective is this. God pours His love into your heart. Do you feel it the same all the time? No. You don't. Sometimes you're overwhelmed by it. Sometimes your life feels dry. As a true Christian, it feels dry. It feels barren. You wonder where God's gone. There are some people who seem to experience it more than you do or more frequently than you do. Or they have higher plateaus than you do. Some don't seem to come up to the plateaus you have. It's subjective. God pours out that love into the heart of individuals as He determines. Sometimes more in some, sometimes less in others. Sometimes greater extent in one and lesser extent in another. It happens. But what is it always based on? The Spirit of God always works through this objective, biblical, historical truth. And what is it? Jesus Christ suffered for the ungodly. When you were helpless, when you were yet weak, when you were yet in your sin, God showed His love and demonstrated it by... Think with me as a Christian. When are we most overwhelmed by the love of our God? Is it not in the cross? Is it not when we sing about His redemption for us? Is it not when we see Him lifted up as the Savior of us? Hallelujah! What a Savior! Sometimes that lights up our hearts like we can't even express to other people. Why? It's because God is sitting there with the big jug of His love. And as we sing that song and that objective truth comes home to us, He's pouring it in. But you know, the next week, sing the same song, same people. What happened? I'm dead. And all of a sudden, bang! It comes through crown Him with many crowns. Well, why the difference? Well, because God decided to do it in one song this week through that objective truth. And maybe it's a whole other thing. You see... If you're justified, you get this. This is experiencing the life in Christ. This isn't just some book knowledge kind of Christianity. This is the real deal. But it always comes back and hinges on the objective truth. If I'm not preaching to you objective truth, I am not giving you the very tools by which God will pour His love into you. You do not experience the pouring of this love through the Holy Spirit in a vacuum. It is attached to the objective, historical, biblical truth that God gives to us in His Word. Jesus Christ crucified. That's the issue. And you know what happens, folks? If we diverge in this direction and we leave behind that objective truth and we come over to the place where we try to seek experience without the truth, you know where we end up? We end up cultish. We end up like the charismatics. But if we go to the other extreme where all it is is truth, and we don't have the experience of the Holy Spirit who intimately, in a relational way, is communicating, then all we've got is intellectualism and it's dead and it's weak and it's useless. And so we walk the middle line where we have the truth of Christ and His resurrection, His sufferings, His death on my behalf. 
And we have the Spirit of God taking that and making my Christianity the real thing. And I say these things for this reason. Some of you, no matter what your religion might be, you don't know these experiences of being overwhelmed by the love of Christ. And if you don't, go back to the beginning. Because it's essential. Can I tell you guys, this, this is the revival we're looking for. We are looking for the love poured into our hearts. That is revival. That is the great awakening that we want as a church. That is it. As God, through His Holy Spirit, communicates His love for mankind through the work done on the cross, that is the fullness of the revival I want to see. And I don't only want it in my heart, I want it in your heart, and I want it in some out there that have no idea, they've never tasted of it, to have their eyes open. But it will not happen, folks, unless justification is that base reality, that justification based on a faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ by which a sinner stands in the righteousness of Christ, totally perfect, all their sins obliterated off their record, acquitted totally, because the blood of Jesus Christ has washed them totally clean. That is the basis for all this. None of these five things, whether it's the peace, it's the access to grace, the glory of God, the sufferings, or the love being poured into us, none of them will be had by any of you if you're not first justified. And justification is by faith. It is faith that is directed very specifically to what Jesus Christ accomplished in His life and in His death. And the first moment you trust that Christ and all that He did to accomplish redemption for sinners, that moment, God declares you just. Righteous. With a righteousness that's not your own. But He's Christ. Imputed to you. Not out of any work or merit on your part. But because Christ lived perfectly and died perfectly to pay every single sin. Oh, folks. If I could preach all this to you with angelic voices, it wouldn't make it any more glorious. It might sound more glorious, but it wouldn't be any more glorious. Because these five realities, if you will let them soak in, if you are saved right here, you should jump. <laughs> Literally. You should jump on the, based on these five things. Father, we, we praise You for them. Thank You, Lord, that You have poured out Your love. You've given us the hope of Your glory. Lord, I long for it. I have seen in times of trial how You have upheld me through them. Lord, You have laid aside the weapons of Your warfare against me. And Lord, You've given me access to that grace. And I see on every hand, You are maintaining my good. You've promised to do it. And I see it being done. And I see it being done for a whole number of people that sit in this room right now who are my fellow gloriers in Your glory. And, and Lord, we have been justified by the same Christ on the same cross. And we thank You for it, Lord. In Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed. <clears throat>